Hello, I'm C. Stephen Ellis, novelist, and this is my podcast, The Writer's Mind. Here we will discuss all aspects that relate to the craft, business, and creative side of writing. For more information or a transcript of this podcast, please go to my website, www.cstephenellis.com, and that's Stephen with a V. So focus your ears because it's time to step inside the writer's mind. Hello, today is April 5th, which means this is the third episode of my podcast, The Writer's Mind. That's right, I've made it to episode three. Woohoo! So today, The Writer's Mind will be talking to Marie Rose. Marie is a writer, a producer, a novelist, an audiobook producer, an audiobook actress. I'll uh, be talking to her and her partner about audiobooks in a couple weeks, so stay tuned for that. Um, since my podcast is called The Writer's Mind, I thought I'd share with you what's, well, on my mind. Today, I wanted to talk about the business of writing, in general, promotion, and then specifically, Facebook ads. So, first I want to make the distinction between boosting an ad on your Facebook page and creating an actual ad. Boosting an ad on your Facebook page, you pay about $5 and then it runs out there for the world to see for the duration of whatever you want to boost the ad for. And a Facebook ad is actually an ad that is designed to do whatever it is you want to do. So, um, you know, in my case, it's a giveaway. So I'm, uh, I'm giving away a Kindle Paperwhite e-reader and I created a Facebook ad to do so and I have to say I'm really not happy with the results that's not to say you won't do better I mean perhaps your cover is better my cover I mean your book cover or perhaps your copy is better and by copy I mean you know the ad copy I'm just talking about my results um, and actually, I'm currently taking a Facebook course on how to use Facebook ads for generating traffic to your mailing list and to sell more books. And to be honest, I haven't finished the course, but rather I jumped right into creating ads because, let's face it, I have the attention span of a carrot. So minus two points for me. What I'm trying to do is promote this giveaway. Oh, by the way, if you're interested in this, you can go to my Facebook page, see Stephen Ellis, and that's Stephen with a V, and scroll down until you find the uh, giveaway post and click on the button to sign up. Or you can go straight to my website and click on the link at the bottom of my homepage. Anyways, I didn't know what my expectation should have been but there certainly wasn't what I got. I mean, I suppose I would have been happy if I'd spent maybe, I don't know, $100 to add 100 names to my mailing list. A dollar a name, maybe that, I don't know, is that an unfair expectation? So far, I've spent $67, and my list has increased by, drumroll please, 
five names. That's it. And I got to be honest, I'm, that's disappointing. Plus, I feel that these five names are not really potential readers, but just signed up to get the prize. And then as soon as the raffle is over, they'll unsubscribe and that'll be that. And that's okay. You know, I mean, it's to be expected. I know that there's a, a percentage of, of those who sign up who will actually stay on the list. I have no idea what that number is. I mean, maybe it's 25 out of 100. Maybe it's 10 out of 100. I really don't know. But I do know that out of five people, the chances are that they're really not going to stay on the mailing list. And uh, their interest in my book, you know, will be fairly low. But I'm trying to stay positive. And in doing so, I'm creating another Facebook ad which goes out today. This ad will target a much smaller group. I'll actually only be targeting those people on Facebook who are fans of the authors that I think fall, and I say this very loosely, but fall into the same genre as my novel. This is not an easy thing to find out. There are ways that people tell you, you know, go to Facebook, look what other people are buying after they bought your book, etc. But if you haven't sold a lot of books, there won't be those customers are buying this as well under the page. Anyway, um, even though this is a smaller audience, I think that because I'm, I'm targeting this specific demographic, I'm really hoping that these are people who are more likely to stay signed up and hopefully become fans of my current books and any future books. I will let you know how it works out. Okay, so enough about me. Let's get to Marie Rose. Sit back, relax, and step into the writer's mind. So, hi everybody. We're talking to Marie Rose, who is an author. She has written novels. She has written screenplays. Whatever you can do when putting pen to paper, she has done. So, Marie, could you please introduce yourself and tell us about your background a little bit? I uh, got my start in the entertainment world because I went uh, to the trouble to get a master's degree in theater, which uh, means I am a performer, but a lot of my graduate school work, they had me with my nose in uh, plays, reading three-act Aristotelian structure, which, as you know, Daddy Aristotle gave us uh, the, the structure that pretty much all Western cinema adheres to. Uh, it's just a commercial way of doing movies, and very rarely will Hollywood depart from that three-act structure. Every movie you've ever seen from Pirates of the Caribbean, if it was a Hollywood movie, to um, Charlie Chaplin's films, they all have a beginning, a middle, and an end with a resolution, a denouement, be it tragedy or comedy. So I was reading in college a lot, a lot of Jacobean theater, Commedia dell'arte, uh, Renaissance, Restoration, Brechtian theater, anything I could get my hands on. So by the time I graduated, I really knew story forwards and backwards and sideways. And so I decided to move to Los Angeles, not only to pursue perhaps an acting career, but I ended up uh, getting hired at studios and production companies to read for a living to analyze screenplays. So my real earn while you learn, I call that my USC film school boot camp was, you know, in the trenches at studios like Disney or uh, production companies like New Regency or Mel Gibson's Icon Productions or uh, Simpson Bruckheimer back when 
you know, it was Simpson Bruckheimer, not just Bruckheimer, and uh, places like that. So I read about 6,000 screenplays, not kidding. I wrote about 6,000 coverages and evaluations over the course of my story analyst career for the studios. And I figured out very quickly what not to do because not all of those got made, not even a fraction got made for good reason because they were bad um, or lackluster um, or couldn't get financing or somebody didn't like the star or, I mean, there's a, there's a million reasons why a film doesn't get made and most of the ones that I read that any story analyst will read, the slush pile just doesn't get made. And But it's also your job as a story analyst to find the, the gems, the creme de la creme, the, the cream that floats to the top, and call your boss's attention to that. You're going to protect your boss from reading too much, but you better not let the next Oscar winner slip through the cracks. So some of the screenplays that did get made ranged, like, diverse. Everything from L.A. Confidential, which is an Academy Award winner, to Freddie Got Fingered, which was a Raspberry Award winner. So I, I read a lot of winning <laughs> scripts one way or the other. And... Um, one thing that I found uh, in, in doing that was that, you know what, once you know what not to do in a script and what to do in a script, start writing your own scripts after you have read enough of them. Uh, definitely do that. And that's what I started doing was writing my own scripts and, and putting them into contests and festivals and fellowships. And I ended up winning uh, the Disney Fellowship in Screenwriting. And then a little while later, I and so I wrote two screenplays under the auspices of, um, you know, the, the guidance of Disney executives. And then I went on to uh, win an American Film Institute directing workshop for women, which was a filmmaking grant because I did want to transition to direct as well behind the camera. Um, because the writer doesn't really have a, as much power as you might imagine. The director, really, and the producer above that really do. So I wanted to get into the directing and the producing realms, and American Film Institute was my next training ground. And my short film that I wrote uh, starred a then six-year-old Dakota Fanning in her first starring role. Uh, and so that that was a wonderful experience. And as I kept working, I kept, you know, I started getting private clients would approach me, writers who I'd worked with in the studios would say, hey, what do you, you know, I liked your notes, what would you, you know, can we work together to refine my next one, etc. So from there, I just started building my own private clientele, and while well, I was also pursuing my own projects. And I eventually was a recipient of the Producer Guild of America, because I wanted to get into producing, I entered one of their uh, wonderful programs, and I was selected to be in their uh, Producers Guild of America diversity program. Have you ever won a lottery ticket? <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, I do win some stuff. I, I, I won't. Uh, it, it, it sounds like great copy to, to talk about in five minutes, but it this happened over the span of a 24-year Hollywood career. So, and I've, you know, obviously you don't get everything you go after, but I, I do very much enjoy... Uh, story and I was writing screenplays when the spec market was hot. Right now, it's starting about 2006, the spec market isn't so healthy. And really, unless you have a obscure Marvel franchise in your pocket, <laughs> you really be able to write for the studios at this time unless you're already an A-list writer or something like that. It's very rare. That's why so many people went indie. 
and uh, including myself. Um, I decided that I had some great screenplays. I got the rights back to them if they w were optioned or they went into turnaround. And I decided I was going to start novelizing some of my screenplays into novels. Because guess what? Hollywood won't buy your spec screenplay, but what? guess what they will look for is your um, the next big film they're looking for is in book form. They want to adapt books from... Uh, it's kind of crazy because let's say you have a script and you couldn't sell it to Hollywood, but you novelize it and you put it on Amazon or you you self you know self release it, you indie publish it, and then they have a bunch of book scouts scouring to see what's trending, and you can actually sell the film rights to the book that you based your screenplay on that Hollywood wouldn't buy. So it's that's been happening to you know many writers uh, lately, and a lot of the big uh, you know, breakout books and immediately get snapped up. So I do encourage people, maybe if you love screenplay, definitely have that in your hip pocket, but novelize it, put get it out there, make it an audio book, get it as large an audience and as big a notice as you can, and then uh, sometimes Hollywood will come and knock, and then that can happen easier than winning a lottery ticket. Wow. Well, first of all, aside the fact that I never want to compete with you in any contest whatsoever, <laughs> uh, I want to go back to your, uh, your your consulting days when you were when you were but uh, uh, you were a script supervisor. What were you? You were a story editor when you were doing story editing. So, <laughs> I remember when I was over at uh, William Morris and I was doing coverage and I was uh, passing scripts along. I always had this theory that. It was the bottom person who started the ball rolling, was always the person who said, you know, this actually might be kind of good. And then the people above you don't want to appear to be non-intelligent. So they just say, well, if he thought it was good, it must be good. And then pass it up. And if she thought it was good, it must be good. And it just keeps going up the ladder until it, it, uh, it, somebody finally puts the brakes on it or it gets made. So in my case... Um, I had a movie that I thought was really fun and got made, and it was one of the most terrible movies ever made. And I was just wondering if you ever had that experience where you saw something that was originally good, but then by the time it made it through everything, uh, you know, it just did not turn out the way you'd hoped or the way it was originally conceived. Yeah, that happened to me on Memoirs of a Geisha. Oh, Okay. I was evaluating that as possible book-to-screen adaptation, and I thought, wow, this is a great book. And then I was reading the script, and they were going through many, many drafts of the script at the studio, and I was like, gosh, you, you know, you guys had it on script draft four, and now you're on script draft 16, and I wasn't the only analyst saying, well, we go back, rewind, you know, go back and to an earlier draft of the script and, and start from there again, because they just took kind of a Y turn or a left turn that didn't didn't really execution wise didn't really script wise you couldn't really get the depth and the breadth and the feel of that story that you could in the book and then the director was you know a very good director obviously very credible everybody had their jobs covered because they hired the best director they could for that possible film look wise but it didn't really translate to you know very well another one that was really good in script form that didn't quite Due to because it, it's everything's execution dependent, and the execution was still very good, but it was just a better script. Was the Truman Show? Really, mm -hmm. I like the Truman. Show. A chance to read an earlier draft of the Truman Show, read it because 
along with the audience, you know, Truman, you know, Truman doesn't know what's going on. In an earlier draft of the Truman Show, neither does the audience. We're with Truman and we're like, why did a light fall from the sky? We don't know. It's a spoiler alert. Oh. And it was just better because it's like becomes this mystery and then he's on the run and then he's like, then he figures it out. And we're like, oh my, what? You know, it was like a big, uh, big moment. And of course, for some reason, the studio didn't trust that the audiences were intelligent enough to get it or whatever. What was the reason? But in the trailer, you find out it's, you know, in the theatrical trailer, you found out it was um, a reality show. Sorry if I've spoiled that. For oh, well, it was. <laughs> oh, no. It, but so, yeah, that, so that was kind of an interesting, you know, one where I was like, God darn. I mean, that was still good. I mean, you know, obviously, but if, if you had read the earlier draft, you would have been a little disappointed. So back then when you were doing story editing, did you uh, and, and they weren't accomplished writers like the, the projects that you're talking about? Obviously, the people that were involved in that were very accomplished and had been you know, brought in for those reasons. But when you were dealing with the new people, the people who, you know, this is their first screenplay or these are the spec screenplays and they're hoping to, to make something out of them. Was there, was there something that was, you know, considered like a red flag, like you could get five pages into it and you go, Oop, nope. And then, you know, off into the slush pile or off to the, to the trash bin it went. Wouldn't that have been nice if I could do that? But I was the one person at the company who had to read all the pages and I couldn't stop on page five. But by page two or five, I did know if it was going to be a pass or consider. Oftentimes, if it was a good screenplay, you'd take them home, laid a big bundle at night, and you'd start reading. And you were under orders that if you sensed something was really hot and good, like with my best friend's wedding, that happened. And I was told, and I was calling, you know, that night, calling. I had the, you know, executive on the phone saying, yeah, 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 this is good. Yep, yep, it's going to get, you know, sure enough, there was a bidding war, you know, stuff like that. But Ron Bass was a, a respected and a well-known screenwriter at that time, right? Yeah, but it was, it was, it, it was just, it was the, it was the writing that was good, but it was the concept. And, and Hollywood is very concept dri- driven. I hate to say it, but you can write a low concept beautifully written would never get made in Hollywood. But if you take a high concept and very badly written, it can get snapped up because we're a concept driven industry and they'll hire other writers to punch it up. But if you have a unique concept, that's really uh, what Hollywood looks for anymore. That's hence all the Marvel tentpole movies. Okay. Can we leave your Hollywood career for a second and talk about your children's book career? Oh, sure. Well, uh, children's books, um, whenever I write a story, the story tells me what it wants to be in a couple of times in my life because I really love children's literature and always have been a big fan. Of course, everybody started off reading children's literature, so we're all familiar with children's literature and what our favorite books were and what really turned us on to reading. And uh, Children's literacy is also important to me, always has been. And uh, so a couple of times a story told me it wanted to be um, a children's story, a, a children's picture book. I could see it in my head. And so the first time I did it, I ended up selling my, my story to a publisher, a small boutique publisher who's since went defunct. And uh, the book is now out of print, but I never got my rights back because uh, the contract wasn't what it should be. I signed a contract I shouldn't have signed without having it due diligent looked over. 
So then for my next book, I decided I was going to self, not self-publish, I call it indie publishing because we don't call it self-film, we call it indie film. So it's not vanity press like it used to be in the old days or anything like that. It's uh, really, you're an independent book producer. You're a writer, you're organizing the pr production of it. Um, and that's what I decided to do for my current release called Zwish, which is a, uh, it's like a space, imaginative space creative journey th through that a child takes on a, on a rocket through our solar system. And the illustrations done by the amazingly talented Susan Lee are done in the style of Vincent van Gogh and his Starry Night. And he's my favorite painter. And when I took the project to Susan, she was able to give me exactly what I wanted to lush, thick brush strokes. She did all of the illustrations in oil. Nobody does that anymore, by the way. It's usually all computer animated graphic art <clears throat> done in the computer. And she actually took the, you know, 32 canvases and created miniature masterpieces of each panel uh, to follow my story. And so that was a labor of love that took a little while to, to get done. If you, if you want to get into the children's market, the only reason to do it is because you love it. Don't do it because you're going to get rich overnight. Very, very few people in the children's picture book market can only write children's picture books for a living. Um, but it, this was a, a labor of love. We ended up also making, um, my partner Chris Chamberlain and I also made an interactive storybook app on Apple uh, out of the story where you could touch little elements on the on Susan's art and it would come alive and do little things and sound effects, etc. And we also made, even though it doesn't make a lot of sense to do this, we went ahead and did it. We made audiobooks for Audible out of the text of Zwish, which... You lose the art when you do that. You don't get to see the, the lush art. So that might not be as effective as a marketing tool for children's picture books. Um, children's picture books for marketing is very tricky. Uh, there's a unique problem with books, readers or emerging readers that you don't have with adults uh, for grownups. And that is because what it might be, who buys those books? Who's the actual decision maker when they in buying those books? Do the kids go to the bookstore and pick out their own book and pull out their wallet and charge it to their card? They don't. It's the parents and the grown-ups. So you really have to make sure that you appeal. And those are also the people who have to read that story over and over and over again if, if you're lucky enough that it connects with the child. So you have to make sure that your children's book connects to the four quadrants, young, old, female, male. If you can hit all those four quadrants, you know, definitely you're going to get a well-reviewed book, whether or not it's a bestseller, because of the saturated market right now. So when you're marketing, you, you have to gear toward, you know, your book trailer or whatever you're using for your marketing tools. Make sure it's in front of the, the mommy bloggers um, rather than kids, kids their own Amazon accounts. So what did you do to market your children's book? Well, you have to you have to go after and nicely ask all the inundated mommy bloggers and ch there are children's book reviewers. Again, I put it up in nominations into some contests uh, and it did get nominated for a Clell Award. It's a Colorado Children's Literacy Award, which I was very proud of. And um, so that got it some notice. 
Um, friends, word of mouth is very important. Social media is important for authors. I'm pretty sure every author knows that, but how to use that is important. Um, you have to be a presence in it. You have to, if you don't like to blog and you want it, you're going to start a blog, you're going to have a problem because you're not going to maintain that blog and it's not going to do you any good. Um, same thing with your Twitter account. You know, it, you, there are ways that you can set up your Twitter using Hootsuite, you know, or using something called Triber where you get with a bunch of other like-minded creative arts souls on Twitter and you can automate tweeting out each other's tweets to so that you're sharing your audience with other people and they're sharing their audience with you. So that that can be helpful. Um, other than that, it's very difficult to cut through because your competition is going to be oftentimes the parents remember the, the books they loved as a child and they're going to want to give their child Ping the Duck or Dr. Seuss or Hans Christian Andersen. <laughs> so you're competing with those guys, those those guys who get a big piece of the pie, you know, the giving tree, you know, classics and things like that. Those are often given as gifts. So this in a way touches on the, my next question because I wanted to, you mentioned, you know, you did the, um, the interactive book for iBooks and you did the uh, book trailer so where does technology start to fit in now that you're, you know, trying to market your book? I mean, uh, and not just social media, but I mean, you know, making it interactive, doing a book trailer, getting the book trailer out there, things like that. Well, I mean, that get, there's nowhere else to do it anymore except on social media, whether it's YouTube or um, really the, the big players are Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. And... So those you should have some mastery over if you're an, uh, a writer. If you don't like to do that, you can hire if you've got a little coin. You can hire virtual uh, PAs, you know, uh, who will um, schedule all this for you. You still have to come up with some content and things. They can't write your blog for you, but they can write your tweet for you. They can post on Facebook for you <clears throat> as long as you have uh, a body of books to you know to 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 basically sell another good thing to do is make networks with people make friends in your industry go to writers conferences go to i mean like the, ch the children's um, society of children book at book book writers and illustrators has two conferences a year one in southern california and one in new york you should make 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 every opportunity you can. But if even if you can't travel to those places, um, you should have local chapters. If you're a romance uh, author, and you should belong to the Romance Writers of America, just for the networking alone, on top of all of the other perks. And even if you can't make it to their national conference or something once a year, you can always join your local chapter. And those people are wonderfully supportive I you know I'm in the romance writing world too under a different name and because I keep my name separate in different genres but uh, the romance people are just the most supportive nourishing group of writers who can steer you toward opportunities you hadn't heard of uh, etc and if you are a mystery writer or a thriller writer there's there's groups and guilds for that too and you should totally be part of uh, of that community so that you can find everything that you would be missing if you're just alone writing in a vacuum alone in your man cave or your she cave. 
So when I was on your website, I noticed that you have a link to Indie Rose Books for Kids. Now, is this a is this going to become a publishing platform for you for people other than than yourself, or is this just your own little? Well, I could right now. It's my own little side. You know, it's it's my shingle for books that I write. I'm not as interested in becoming a publisher for others because I think online publishing is a very specialized skill and animal. It would take me away from my own creativity and from my own story clients. And that's what I really like. The actual nuts and bolts of publishing, I do it out of self-defense. I don't do it out of passion for publishing and, and working on create space and figuring out how. As a matter of fact, if it weren't for my partner, Chris Chamberlain, all of that probably wouldn't be happening for me because he's really got the intelligence and the and the skill and the uh, experience uh, to, to reverse engineer all that. I'm very much a, a right-brained, left-hander <laughs> person. Are you left-handed? I am. Myself. I didn't know that. I'm in my right mind, yes. In your right mind, haha. I yeah. get it. So anyway, yeah, that's uh, for marketing children's books or, or publishing children's books, I think that's going to happen once in a while. My main love right now is writing uh, mainstream fiction. I've got several on the drawing board coming up. I'm working with my uh, clients. I, I'm, I've produced independent feature film I've also that I help creative develop. I don't always produce what I help creative develop, but I can if I really feel strongly about it. Um, and my clients are keeping me busy right now on top of uh, my, my partner, Chris, and I are have started our own audio book business. So in that sense, I am a publisher because you do have to produce that. You can't just be the narrator, but that's where my masters of theater comes full circle. And I can be back in the performing world too. And I can do my own books, which I love to do. And then I can also contract with authors to do their books. Oh, and do you find though, basically that marketing is marketing. It really doesn't matter the genre. Do you think there's a difference between marketing for uh, in the fiction uh, world marketing for romance versus marketing for children versus marketing for general fiction or literature even. Yeah, it, the genres do matter because I guess it's just finding the right channel. You need to find what channel those romance authors are already attuned to and go there uh, to sell your book because they're not going to find you in the mystery forum of you know AOL or you know they're not going to find right, you right right. So, I mean, you have to find where your group is swimming and go jump in that water. Um, and again, with children's literature, it's just, it's its own animal because really the parents are responsible for, they're the decision makers and they're, they're the, the, the power of the buying is with the parents. So you can't market it to kids, but you better make sure it appeals to them. Well, you know, it's generally thought that marketing for nonfiction is a lot easier than marketing for fiction. Have you ever considered going into the nonfiction world? I do have one project. <clears throat> I'm just more of a fiction person, but I do have one project that um, I, I, it is a nonfiction project, and it's based on a personal experience. Um, and it would be, it'd be a specialty book that it's not a line that I really pursue. It's one of those things of what do I have to bring to the table for this particular topic, and I think I do have something to bring to the table for that particular um, discussion. And I don't see a lot of, of other authors servicing the need for the discussion uh, that I'm thinking of. So in that sense, yeah, there's a need for it. There's, 
uh, a demand for it that's not being met. And, it, and it's something that I'm an expert at because of life experience. I would absolutely consider, I would like to write that someday. But I, right now it's so many ideas, so little time. Right. I get you. Well, um, one of the other things I wanted to circle back to was when you were talking about uh, screenwriting, you were talking about, um, uh, we were talking about the Truman Show and the Truman Show about how the audience, uh, the revelation that Truman is actually, you know, being uh, manipulated and is out, you know, is part of a, a show falls to the audience at the same time it starts to occur to the character. So what do you think about that? I'm just thinking recently of a movie out there, and spoiler alert, everyone, uh, Reveal. I mean, not Reveal. Um, oh, it was, I'm blanking on her name. Uh, it's about the aliens, and she's a, a linguist. Arrival. Rival, thank you. Arrival. Because that way that is revealed to the audience is the same way it's almost revealed to the character, yet we are intentionally manipulated at the beginning of that film. I haven't seen that film yet. I was supposed to see it yesterday, but I got too busy on uh, a project I'm working on. So well, I can't. We don't have to talk about that. <clears throat> but I can't speak necessarily to that. But thank you for not spoiling it for me. So. I hear it. Uh, and that's that's something that I really am enjoying since I've been out of the studio realm. And I don't. I used to be I couldn't go see a movie uh, that I hadn't read, so I knew what every movie was going to. There was every spoiler in the world was in my head. And sometimes I even forgot that I read it until, you know, the, the opening credits are over, and then I'm like, oh, I read this. Yeah, the butler did it, and then the alien bites his head off, and, and then <laughs> I'd see that movie. Yeah, I bl I blurted it. I blurted, you know the spoiler out so <laughs> now I'm really I'm enjoying being surprised by stories and movies again um, because I haven't read everything that you know the, the spec scripts used to make their way around town <clears throat> and so I, I you know I'd read it at New Regency and then you know at my desk at Disney I'd read it again and I'd you know <laughs> at so, the time it, like oh, I don't I don't even care if I see it do you find now that you're no longer uh, living in Southern California, do you find that there's a big difference in terms of your ability to do what you need to do, to network, to discuss, to get people on the phone? I mean, we live in a global world, but is it really? Well, so far, it's been fine. Um, my clients have followed me to, uh, uh, you know, when I, ha I, I decided to move this year, I'd already spent 24 years building my network there. I still have a network there. Everybody still knows who I am. They know I'm still working in the industry. But now the, with, you know, remote commute, with FaceTime, Skype, um, Internet, it's, it's really a different world. You can, and I do, as long as I'm not having to be an on-camera performer at a studio in Hollywood, I don't have to be there anymore. So that, I mean, FaceTime and internet and all the accoutrement of of our social online presence you don't have to be in los angeles anymore um unless you're doing physical production and then guess what they're going to send you out of town usually anyway um so uh, i still can fly back and take meetings but so far all of my deals i've been making from here were based on networks and um relationships i had built when I was in Los Angeles and they'd come with me. That's great. 
So again, just circling back to one last thing that you said much earlier in the discussion, you were talking about, uh, you know, spec scripts are dead. And the best way is to, you know, come up with, uh, you know, write your own novel and get that in front of somebody. And that's how stories are getting sold. But that's a very difficult thing. I mean, how would you advise people to get their material in front of the of the right eyes? Well, get it in front of a buying audience first. That's what you want to do. And some of those eyes will be industry eyes, whether you ever know it or not, because they are scouring Amazon right now. And if you can crack into the top 100 lists, if you can become, a, of course, a USA Today or a New York Times bestseller, of course, you're going to float to the top of that of that heap. But there are book scouts who specifically look for for that kind of thing. So your job, you can't really know where they are. Sometimes you can go to symposiums or forums, and one of those will be on the panel, and they'll be nice enough to, and, and that's what happened to me, is I went to the WGA at one time, and a book scout was on the panel, and she was nice enough to say, she gave her email out to everybody and said, just say you were at this one, and I'll, I'll take a look at your pitch type of thing. So that's where you going out and not staying in your, your writer's cave really matters you should be going out especially if you live in los angeles there's no excuse because there's so much uh industry networking going on and, and events at all the different guilds um and uh another thing that that is very helpful sort of connected to that is especially if you're a screenwriter you your words were meant to be spoken aloud they weren't meant to lie flat on the page so if you can join get a critique buddy uh, get a, or even better, a critique group where they will read sections of people's work aloud every week. And, uh, you know, just listening to your words out, you know, being spoken out loud, you'll immediately know what part of your dialogue's not working or what part of the action's not working. And you'll get notes from that may or may not be helpful from the writers afterwards too. But just listening to your own words being spoken out loud is a huge education for any writer. So make your work really good before you release it. I see so many writers who typecast themselves in readers' eyes or in executives' eyes or in a buyer's eyes or producer's eyes as amateur because they won't spell check. You know, they won't they don't know the difference between two, two and two or there, there and there. And these are things that are very easy to correct. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, don't direct from the page. Uh, you know, you've got to show, not tell, if it's a moving picture, if it's a, if it's going to be that. Now, in a, in a novel, you have all kinds of luxury to, to go on an interior journey with your narrative description and your internal dialogue with your, your, your characters. And you can tell us a lot, you know, uh, in the narrative description that doesn't have to just come out in action and in dialogue like it does in screen. Gotcha. So work really strong before you put it out there. All right. Well, we're almost out of time, so I'm just going to wrap this up by asking, how can people get in touch with you? Do you even want people to get in touch with you? Sure. Um, it depends on what they want to get in touch with me for, of course. But the uh, different, if you want to get in touch because you want to know about audiobook consulting for audiobook producing and narration, let's say you already have a book out, uh, then you can contact me and my partner, Chris Chamberlain, at our website is chamberlainroseproductions.com. 
if you want to get a hold of Marie as a story analyst and a creative consultant for your book or your film, uh, then you can email me at IndieRoseFilms at sbcglobal.net. My website is going undergoing a revamp right now. But I do have one, but it's, it's not easily accessible right now for that. And if you're interested in talking about children's literature, contact me at childrenstoriesforbedtime.com. That's fantastic. Marie, thank you so much. Thanks, Greg. This was terrific.